the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. It's the fall of the year 2000, and I am in my first year of seminary in Berkeley, and there was a classmate of mine that I thought was really cool, and uh, I wasn't really sure if she thought I was cool until she invited me to dinner. Uh, she cooked for me in our dormitory kitchen. She made butternut squash, and uh, it was a fantastic meal, and not because of the squash. <laughs> Sometimes people think that a great meal is because of the food that you eat or where you eat it. They're confused about that. Uh, it's about the company that you keep. That's what makes a meal great. That's what confused the Israelites. They thought that a great meal was about leeks and onions and the meat in Egypt. And that's not what it was about at all. It was about who provided it and why. They had to be continually reminded about this all the way until the time of Nehemiah. So a thousand years later, at about 445, Nehemiah is sent back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You remember that he's sent with the prophet Ezra by uh, Adizerses, the Persian king. And so in about 445, we get the beginning of the second temple period, where they're rebuilding the walls of the temple. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And they do this in large measure due to the faithfulness of Nehemiah, who's not a prophet, he's not a priest, he's not a king, he's a layman, he's a, uh, a, a governor, he's an organizer. And uh, if you've heard me talk before about Nehemiah, you know my passion for this uh, lay person and uh, the strength of the faithful community due to lay people who take the authority that's given to them by God and exert it for the benefit of God's people, who take it to organize God's people and to lead them into all good discipline, to follow the word of God, and that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Here in this passage, Nehemiah is doing part of his work of governor, and that is he's recording the words of the prophet Ezra, as Nehemiah and Ezra work together. Really, in Hebrew, their book is, is one book together. He records these words of the prophet Ezra in uh, chapter 9, and they are the form of a Eucharistic prayer. They're the form of a Eucharistic prayer that we have had through the centuries, which is to remind the people of God of uh, the Lord's faithfulness, of His compassion and mercy, and of the mighty acts that He's accomplished despite the faithlessness of His people. And so we hear the prophet Ezra say uh, that the people have stiffened their necks. The stiffening of necks is an allegory of pack animals, right? Pack animals have to be led with a bridle in their mouth. Uh, and so we are being compared as the people of God to pack animals. Last week we were compared to fish, this week to donkeys, right? And so a pack animal that has a bridle in its mouth is supposed to have its head turned to go the way the master would lead. And a pack animal that stiffens its neck won't be led in that direction. This is a model of repentance, right? We've talked about the complexity of repentance. I was going this way, and God turns me to go this way. That's the complexity of repentance. You want to see it again? I was going this way, God turns me to go this way. If my neck is stiff, and I continue to go the wrong way, I won't walk into the blessings the Lord has provided. And yet, though they refuse to obey, we read that the Lord is ready to forgive. He is gracious. He is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He will not forsake His people. And so His love is not dependent, thank goodness, to our 
faithfulness, our response. We read three times that he did not forsake them. And more than this, the Lord gives them his own Holy Spirit. This is the central message and purpose of God's uh, purpose for humanity and salvation. That is his desire to put his Holy Spirit with us, to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us, to be with us in our daily lives. To sit down at meal with us. And this is what Jesus accomplishes in perfection and fullness when he gathers the people around the banks of Galilee and he has them sit down in groups in an orderly fashion. He is perfecting what was done in the wilderness and what was talked about by Ezra and Nehemiah. In Matthew chapter 14, in the passage we have this morning, we read, um, when Jesus heard these things, <coughs> excuse me, what Jesus heard was the beheading of John the Baptist and Herod's concern over Jesus um, because of his guilt, right, because he had beheaded him, and thinking that Jesus was John um, come back from the dead or that it's John's spirit somehow. And so in response to these things, to, to Herod's foolishness and wickedness and to John's beheading, Jesus goes apart. He goes off by himself to a desolate place to pray. And this is a pattern that we see over and over in the scripture about Jesus leaving the crowds and the multitudes to go apart to pray to the Father. This is a, a pattern of life that we are called to do on a regular basis, right? To, to take ourselves apart at a quiet time to pray to the Father. And as he does this, he does it, we might say, in, in just a simple reading of this passage, out of his compassion for John, out of his um, sorrow, right? Uh, that he's in mourning over his beloved cousin. And so in Jesus' mourning, in his uh, grieving over his cousin, he goes apart to this desolate place and the crowds follow him. Now when the crowds follow him, unlike those people um, earlier, they're obedient to Jesus and the disciples as he has them sit down and uh, in an orderly fashion. So in Matthew 14, uh, verse 19, we read, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and he, uh, he completes a Eucharistic blessing, right? A, a grace before meal. So this is the first important thing about this passage, that unlike the disorderliness of old, uh, these uh, crowds that gather allow themselves to be ordered, not only by Jesus, but by the disciples. They submit to their authority, they submit to discipleship authority, and they sit in an organized fashion. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they were satisfied. They ate enough and they were satisfied. Now this is a simple right uh, meal of bread and fish and they're satisfied it seems not because of the quality of the fish and the bread which was probably wonderful but they're satisfied because of the presence of God and because of the Holy Spirit and because of their submission to God see sometimes we think that we're going to be satisfied if we get the right thing at the right time and the meal is just right and the attitude is just right our satisfaction is a decision that we make. We can choose to be satisfied with our lives. We can choose to be satisfied with what it is the Lord has provided. We can choose to be satisfied in whatever situation we find ourselves in when we submit to the Lord and to His love and mercy. When we submit to Him ordering our lives. 
When we do that, we learn how to be satisfied in our lives and with the Lord. And as they achieve satisfaction through this orderliness and obedience, we see that there are leftovers, that there are these 12 leftover baskets. Those of you that have heard me preach for a while know that I can't pass up numbers. Uh, 12 is a really great number, right? 12 is a product of the two most important numbers in Scripture, 3 and 4, right? The number 3 is the number of heaven. The number 4 is the number of earth. We see this throughout the Scriptures. We see it at the very beginning of Genesis, right, with 3 plus 4, meaning 7, so the completeness of creation. We see 3 times 4, being 12, the numbers of uh, the tribes of Israel, and again of the 12 disciples. And so this is um, discipleship, apostolic ministry in its fullness as they gather the 12 baskets, right? The result of their orderliness and obedience is to receive the blessing of apostolic ministry. And so they have these 12 baskets. And then we get the 5 and the 2, which are kind of more interesting numbers in a way because they're not as common as 3, 4, and 12. And the fathers aren't in total agreement about this, which is uh, a lot of fun. St. Augustine talks about uh, the way to, um, to interpret Scripture in his confessions in one of the last chapters. And he talks about how the first thing we do when we uh, discuss Scripture is we look at the, just the surface reading, right? So Jesus is feeding people who are hungry out of his love for them. That's the surface reading. We never want to lose that, right? God has compassion for his people. He fulfills their need, right? That's the surface reading. And then he talks about allegorical readings. Well, let me go back. The first thing that we want to say about those surface readings is we never want to make one reading disagree with another. Anytime we hear uh, two things that seem to be in contradiction, we want to stop and take a step back because Scripture does not contradict itself. If we see two things in Scripture that we think are contradictory, it's our mistake, not Scripture's. So we want to take a step back and think, what is it that I'm missing? How am I not understanding this? And allow the Holy Spirit to speak, allow the, the fathers to speak, allow the history of the church, because so much work has been done and prayer and reading to discuss and to explain the scriptures to us, and we can rely upon the church. It's going to take some humility and some patience on our part, but the scriptures are unified in an agreement. The second thing, then, is in these allegorical readings. So can we have multiple allegorical readings? And this is a point that St. Augustine in his Confessions really drives home. He says we can have many, many allegorical readings. And who, in writing a great work of literature, wouldn't want there to be multiple allegorical meanings, right? He says that these allegorical meanings can't be made in disagreement to one another, but we can have multiple ones, so we can have all these layers of understanding. And this is what we might see in the five and the two. St. John Chrysostom talks about the five fish as being the five books of the, uh, of the Pentateuch, right? Uh, the books of Moses. He talks about the, the two um, loaves as being uh, the Gospels and the Epistles. Uh, but Origen talks about them a little bit differently. Uh, many of the fathers have many different interpretations. The one that makes the most sense to me is, again, the five being the, the five basic books of the Bible, right? The first five books of the Bible. So he's giving them the words of Scripture. He's feeding them with Scripture. The second would be the sacraments of the Lord, baptism and Holy Communion, that he is feeding them with baptism and Holy Communion. And so he's strengthening them in the Word and in the sacraments as he feeds the crowds that are gathered. And of course, this 5,000 can also be that five, um, which um, Origen and others talk about as being the number of mankind, right? Because we have... 
five digits and we have five senses and five seems to be a number of humanity. And so God blesses humanity, he blesses all of humanity, the 5,000, with his word and with his sacraments as he feeds them through their obedience and humility. And so when we're fed by the Lord and we receive that food, we receive a meal that is more than the bread and the fish or our wine. It's more than where we are. It is a spiritual communion and feeding by God. And we have to remember this and think about it because we are not naive and we know that there will be hardships and difficult things that we are to endure. And St. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8 about how it is that we are to understand these hardships in the face of God's love for us and of His provision for us, right? Because He loves us and He protects us and He feeds us. And so how are we to understand these hard things? And St. Paul gives us a list of some of the difficult things that we'll experience. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. And then he quotes Psalm 44, right? We're being killed all the day long as sheep led to the slaughter. As a kind of a summary of uh, this, this difficult life, this life of suffering. And, and how do we square that with the God who provides in the wilderness? And it's very important that we do, because this is the argument of the atheistic philosopher. Right? The atheistic philosopher would say, how can I believe in a good God when there's suffering and there's um, difficult things? How is it that a good God allows suffering? How is it that a good God allows persecution and famine? And sometimes Christians will read this and, and really it seems to me in a very kind of a naive and dismissive way and say, oh, well, when I love the Lord and when He's with me and I'm with Him, then I'm not going to have to experience all these bad things. I'm going to overcome and my life's going to be easy. And that's just ridiculous. Right? That is not... What we read in the scriptures, it's not what we read in the history of the church. It's not what we see in the church today, right? The church today is persecuted, right? We look by and large at the church around the world. There are dangers and persecutions and sore. And so how is it that we can understand these sufferings that the Lord allows us to have in the face of His love and His provision? And it's because of the meal the experience of, of being with Him that He desires to have with us. It is not um, after our sufferings or before our sufferings. It's in our sufferings. It's in that experience of suffering. It's in His experience on the cross. It's in His experience of becoming man and dwelling with us. He would walk with us. He would be with us. He would dwell with us. He would eat with us. He would rest with us in all of these experiences. And we know that when we go through those difficult times, when we go through those hardships, we come through them when we're with the Lord so much stronger and profoundly strengthened by His love, when we're not confused into thinking that it was the meal or it was the safety or it was the physical um, condition of our bodies that led us to that joy and peace. It's not those things at all. It's not the condition of the body. It is our presence with God. It is being with Him. Well, thanks be to God. That butternut squash was not the last meal she made for me. 
She's cooked hundreds and thousands, I would think, by this time. And we've had some pretty good meals at restaurants and fancy places. But I don't taste them the way I did that one. Not because of the squash. Hmm? We're about to have the best meal of the week. Not because this is great bread on the table. Not because this is the best wine that we could buy. But because we are with Christ. And He is in us. And we are one with Him and with one another in love. And that love will sustain us every day, of every moment, for all eternity. Thanks be to God.